Hello and welcome to a special presentation of The Grey NATO in partnership with Collective Horology. This episode is part of a loosely new concept for TGN that will allow us to collaborate with the people and brands that we like to produce standalone special episodes that we can offer to all our listeners. Yeah, that's right. We don't really love ads. So this is our way of doing something that is essentially an ad, but it doesn't turn its back on the entertainment or interrupt a standard episode of the show. It's, it's an extra episode freely brought to you by a brand that we know and love. And for this outing, we're pleased to have Collective Horology back for a second TGN special. Totally. So almost exactly a year ago, Collective Horology sponsored our first ever TGN special for the launch of their collaboration with Armin Strom. We did a draft of high-end watches with sporty intentions. And for this special, we're back with another super fun draft focusing on watches from the 1970s. Why? Well, to properly start this episode, we need to introduce our special guest, who's Gabe Riley of Collective Horology. How are we doing, Gabe? I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, an absolute treat as always. I mean, that was one one of my favorite things last year was kind of one of the only drafts we ended up doing because we had a good time and we felt like anything else would kind of be uh, stepping on that. So it's 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 exciting to have another draft on the table. These are always so much fun to kind of um, research for and get ready for and, and put your list together and try and predict what I know about you and what I know about Jason, like what you guys might be picking. And, and we'll, we'll get into some of the metrics of how that's going to work. Uh, but I, I would love a little bit of a background for someone who say didn't listen to last year's episode, which you definitely should. It's still really fun uh, to go back and take a peek at that, even if the watch uh, is, isn't still available. You know, I, I'd love a little bit of a background on uh, Gabe, how, how kind of maybe how you got into watches and how that led to collective. Yeah. Great question. <laughs> how did I get into watches? The short story is when I was about 18 years old, um, my high school girlfriend's dad, uh, showed up in the living room of their of their apartment with a Ziploc bag filled with watches, and he said to me, "Every every man needs a watch." And he pulled out oh. um, of this giant Ziploc bag filled with watches, which is a, a wild mental image, <laughs> a Cartier Santos tank watch. And I didn't really know anything about watches. I, I knew like Cartier was a luxury brand, maybe, but I didn't even know they made watches. I didn't really even. No, or it didn't even really occur to me that like watches were a thing that you would collect or have a giant bag filled with or, or be into in that way. And it sort of sort of opened my eyes to that to that world. And then within within the world of watches, I found my own collecting lane, which is really um, pretty similar to the to the TGN world, which are tool watches. And um, my best childhood friend is also my business partner in collective Asher. He and I grew up together in, uh, we met in seventh grade in, in New York City in homeroom. And as we grew up in life and we sort of went our separate ways to university or uh, uh, living in different places around the country, watches ended up being the thing that kept, it, kept us connected as friends. Um, and so it was really nice to get into the watch hobby and actually have a really close friend to share that with. So I wasn't sort, you know, like the, the, the outsider in my group of friends yeah. or the friends or the only person who was in, into watches. And over time, we, we ended up working at the same company together for about 10 years, which is Facebook. And within Facebook, we were some of the first people in an internal, like an employees uh, watch group. So this was a, a group of Facebook employees who were really into watches and we'd, we'd uh, get together and um, we ended up creating our first collaborative watch for that group, which was actually, it was just in talking in talking watches with, with Ed Sheeran and John Mayer, which was a Tudor Black Bay for Facebook employees. So we made that watch. We made a couple of other watches for this Facebook employee watch club. 
And we started to realize, hmm, maybe there's something here. And uh, about five years ago, we started Collective really on that model, which was building collaborative watches for a community of people. Um, this the, the collab we're going to talk about today is our ninth, which is pretty wild. We've been doing it for five years now. And, um, you know, the, the thing that that Collective is most known for are those are those collaborative watches. And we try to do them across the spectrum. So the last project we chatted with you guys about was for Armin Strom. That's a very different watch than the 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 Oris Diver 65 we'll talk about um, today. And that's because we believe in having like a wide open and curious kind of collecting philosophy rather than focusing on one particular lane or price point or style of watches. So we do that. And then the other thing Collective does is we're a retailer of independent watch brands. So we have about uh, 10 independent watch brands in our shop now. Um, and those range from everything from uh, Chapek to Formex to Fears um, to some smaller makers that, that people may be less familiar with. And the focus there, again, is on having a really wide net of interesting uh, watchmakers who, who are doing unusual things and don't have a ton of distribution. And Gabe, you, um, you've had a presence. Uh, we've met you a couple times at, at Windup uh, in Chicago specifically. Uh, you're just coming fresh off Windup New York. Is there a brick and mortar presence to Collective right now, or do you have plans for that? Yeah, we, we started Collective in um, in Northern California in the, in the Bay Area, um, actually, when we were both working at, at Facebook. And as as Asher and I have this like very fascinating way of ending up in the same place at the same time, Collective is based in Ventura, California, which is probably most famous uh, as being the home of Patagonia. And uh, we have a we have a space there, so uh, that showroom is open by appointment. So if people want to come and check out watches, we call it the Watch Yards. It's in this sort of uh, industrial artist space. Our our next door uh, tenant is a is a sculptor, and there's wood uh, carpenters and all sorts of uh, interesting creative folks in in this space. And a brewery right across the street with amazing views of the ocean. So people can come to Ventura. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and check out watches there. And then we also have a small clubhouse space in Hollywood in Los Angeles that's open by appointment. So if, if people in LA want to see some watches, um, we can, we can see them by appointment there as well. Very cool. That's great. I didn't, I did not know that you, you had the ability right. to, uh, to kind of invite people into the spot in Ventura, let alone a nearby brewery. That's uh that sounds like a nice afternoon. Yeah. Be, being, being near a brewery was like, it was a requirement for, uh, for, <laughs> for Asher. It, it gets a lot of use. It comes in handy. I like it. That's great. Well, look, that gives us a little bit of background on you and on collective. And obviously uh, you and Asher are, are kind of a package pair whenever you run into you guys at, uh, at one of the shows, I think, you know, I'm crossing a parking lot in Geneva. That's where I, typically we catch up <laughs> uh, or maybe at a, a sleepy breakfast table at the hotel before we all head to the show. I think that was maybe our, our last uh, sort of sit down meeting together. I, I, it's, it's always a treat to see you guys and you guys have been great um, supporters and fans of TGN. So we're, we're always thrilled to be able to do these sort of collaborations. And, and you know, for anyone listening, we don't do many of them. One a year is, is kind of the track we're on. You guys have done. Uh, this will be the second uh, with us. And it's something that we take really <laughs> seriously and something we really enjoy. And a big part of that is talking about the the new watch, the collaboration watch. And I think with this one, it, it's a watch that needs um, kind of a visual as well. So I would really suggest even more so than normal, swing by the show notes or swing by collectivehorology.com to see the watch now. If you're listening to this episode, the watch is out. Whether or not it's sold out, 
that depends on how long you took to uh, to kind of get to it. But why don't we jump into sort of the details for this one, which is the Oris Divers, quote unquote, 75 caliber 400 CO4 for collective. I think the place to start with this watch is really with Oris, um, because this this project kicked off because we wanted to work specifically with Oris. Like you guys, we have a huge soft spot for them. We love the watches. I mean, they make a great, honest watch. Yeah. Uh, and I think the other thing that's that's special about Oris is this is a brand that that um, takes being part of the watch community very seriously. Um, we were just talking about Windup. Um, this is a brand that has been at the center of Windup since the very beginning. Um, they, of course, have the Oris Social Club as well. Um, and they, they, they just make a point of being present in the watch community and playing an active role that a lot of brands just just don't. And they do it and they manage to do it in a way that feels authentic and um, not 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 ham fisted. In fact, when I was in New York at Wind Up, one of the highlights was going to the Aura Social Club event. Uh, so the New York chapter had a party and it was at a dive bar. And in the best possible way, you know, when you're at <laughs> when you're spending a week in New York going to watch events, it's like going to an Oris event at a dive bar is like the antidote to everything else. Oh yeah. Palette cleanser. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it just created a, a really relaxing environment where people could, uh, could be themselves. And there were folks from all walks of, of collecting there. There were people who, uh, run the watchmaking divisions of very high end luxury brands to folks who were just starting to explore watches and, and get curious. So it was, it was a really special thing. So working with Oris, was important. And then the kind of the next question is, well, which watch or really what do we want to say with Oris? And and the first Oris I ever had was a Diver 65. It was one of the early ones. It was uh it's called the Diver 65 Deauville and it has this beautiful blue gray dial mm-hmm. with these very funky Arabic numerals at the cardinal uh, points. It's not a watch they they make anymore. I loved that this watch was super funky and unusual in terms of the dial design. And, and the other thing I love about the Diver 65 is the is the case profile and the profile of the, of the bracelet. The mid case on that watch is very elegant. It wears really well at 40 millimeters. And the, and the bracelet just has this beautiful taper. It's a watch that just kind of like oozes charm. It's a really charming watch, the Diver 65 in, in general. So we knew we wanted to do a Diver 65, and um, the, the next kind of question for us was, well, what do we want to say with it? And we don't have a house style. You know, A lot of brands um, who do collaborations have a, a very specific either format or philosophy um, they, they follow, and we don't. We try to find with every project we do something to say with that brand that enhances what's already there or enhances what we love about that brand that's that's already there rather than trying to mold it into a particular style or 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 do do something we've we've done before and so we wanted to do something um that was kind of like creating the uber oris um and really drawing out the the things that we love about oris and i can talk about what those are but to do that we sort of looked at the 1970s and the the design language of of kind of 1970s California, and this was uh, this is a design um, territory that a lot of people are probably familiar with. Just close your eyes and imagine shades of browns, maroons, oranges, and yellows. It's that kind of that kind of vibe, 
And uh, it, it's still alive and well in, in fashion today. In fact, it's having something of a comeback. But for us, being in Southern California, which we talked about, it's sort of a color palette and a mood that never left. You know, it, it started in the 1970s and never, and never went away. So we decided we wanted to sort of pull on that sort of color palette and visual design language. And it worked really well with the Diver 75. So as James, you mentioned, folks should check out uh, on our website, collectivehorology.com, some images um, of the watch. And you'll see it's a, it's a Diver 65. It's in 40 millimeters. Uh, it's bicolor. So it uses Oris's bicolor bronze and steel bracelet. The bezel assembly itself is bronze as well. Uh, this is something that Oris does that's kind of quintessentially Oris. I don't know anyone else that does bicolor bronze and steel. And certainly what's great about Oris is at, at, in the price range they're at, you're not getting something that's PVD'd or, or, or painted on or capped. It's full bronze. So it, it's, it's accessible, but it's also a really authentic kind of bicolor format. And then the dial itself uses that Arabic dial from the early Diver 65, which I chatted about, um, but it's done in browns, maroons, and yellows, so it pulls on that on that color palette. Uh, it's no date, and it uses the caliber 400. And so these are all ways of kind of saying something and using this, this creative lane of this 1970s California design, but making something that only Oris could make. If you see this watch across a room, there's no doubt that it's a Diver 65, and, and that was really important to us. Yeah, and the thing that struck me when I first saw the, uh, like when you guys first told me what the watch was, I was kind of like, well, you're really describing a watch that I'm really not in the market for. Of, you know, browns, uh, two-tone, 70s. And then when I saw it, and I was kind of like, oh, this is, the, the level of cohesion is really high. Like it, it, everything works together nicely. And it, what I think after looking at the images quite a bit, and I haven't seen this watch in the metal yet, but after looking at the images quite a bit, I think what really sells me on it is the color of the loom somehow doesn't look out of place. You know, like it must be difficult because if you think if you if you think back to the other 40 millimeter versions that had this dial, the standard original black one, not that hard to match something with black. Everything matches with black. So the loom could just be loom colored. And then if you move on to the Deauville, which was those bluish yellow sort of hues, the the yellowy tone in the loom worked out well. And I think in my mind, I didn't see the loom working that well on maroon. And then when you see it all kind of come together, and then in my, again, you take it a step further and think of wearing it for six months or a year and how the, um, the patina starts to develop on the bronze elements. I think it's going to be a watch that, yeah, obviously it's definitely an Oris, but also won't look like other 65s or, you know, the, being the 75. Yeah. It's, it's weird like that in that, um, it's both quintessentially Oris but looks nothing like any other Diver 65 um, they've done before, yeah. which is this, this interesting tension. And the other thing that was interesting about the process of making this watch is the, f the final watch we ended up with after prototyping was different from the watch we designed. So working in this world of browns and maroons and, and yellows is not easy. Uh, it's really, <laughs> we found out it's really hard to do a watch with like yeah. a, a brownish dial and, and, and brown um, tones. We had a render, which we approved, uh, gosh, maybe a year or so ago at, at Watches and Wonders. And then we went into the prototyping process. And, and Oris actually ended up producing about five different versions of the dial that were all in sort of the same family, but um, ex explored kind of a wider range of, of color. And we ended up with something that um, I don't know I, if I would have approved off of a, a render, but when you see it in the metal, it actually worked better 
um, than, than what we had. So um, just a reminder that uh, not only is Brown hard to work with, but having something in, in hand or uh, actually produced is really important um, and, and a key step after just approving something on or designing something on a computer. I think it's a, it's a, it's a particularly tall order to differentiate among, you know, within the family of the Diver 65, because there have just been, uh, let's face it, a lot of different variations, including collaborations with in you know, places like Topper or, or Fratello or Hodinkee or whatever. And I'm curious with this one, like it truly is unique among that family. Um, and when you were starting to think about this watch and you had this color palette in mind and this inspiration of, you know, California seventies, did that come first or, or was it, let's go with the bicolor, let's go with bronze. Like w- w- did you consider doing this without the bronze, the, the bicolor configuration, or was it all kind of a cohesive idea? Our creative process generally doesn't start with a watch. I think Oris is actually kind of an acceptance that where we went in knowing we wanted to do a diver 65. Beyond that, no, we didn't have any particular um, design in mind. So we're not watch designers. We never design the watch or tell the brand what to do. Um, the way our, our our process works is we approach the brand usually with with three different creative ideas. Um, so we actually brought a few different um, creative ideas to to Oris, and it actually they were all rooted in um, being from Ventura, California. And uh, you know n- another another design we actually um, explored was using a color palette um, drawn from outdoor gear. So think of the color palettes used in outdoor gears from brands like Patagonia or Code Epoxy, brands like that, that use very vivid primary colors in fun ways. That was a sort of a territory we explored. We also explored uh, a color palette that's literally jo- uh, drawn from the environment around us. Um, the colors of like the... Uh, the cactus and the and the citrus that grows in the hills around us and th- things like that, and then the third was this 1970s um, sort of Southern California design language. And when we approached Oris uh, with that idea, we gave them all three, but with with the one we ended up moving forward with, we just gave them a mood board really, and we said, here's kind of the color palette, here's the vibe, this is the mood and the inspiration. Um, we gave them some thoughts on materials, finishes, things like that, but really, really not much. And we said to them, how would you interpret this? And so the result was they came back mm-hmm. with a you know fully designed watch. And we, we looked at all sorts of different, different versions of it, but we never said to them, we want a diver 65 in this size with a brown dial and bezel and bicolor. Okay. Um, it, it was like, it was a, really a mood board that then they interpreted and, and took and, and took in that direction, which is kind of how we work with with all brands. We don't design the watches. Yeah, and the, the other side of this, I think like the and we'll get to this in the draft. There's a lot of inspiration. You could go any direction with the 70s because 70s watches are quite popular right now. So it's an interesting timing to think that there are many conventionally hyper popular watches that were that were born in the 70s, and then there's so much from that decade that's just down to these sorts of colors and shapes and fonts. And I know that the 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 font, let's say, of the of the markers for the sixty five, the cardinal markers, is the sixties font, but it feels so seventies, which means it seems to work with these colorings. Like this, you, you think of like the the mood board that you're talking about, and in my mind, it's got the the intro to Superbad, 
which I couldn't like is maybe the greatest intro of all time and has the fantastic like it's them dancing and all the colors. It's very 70s, despite the fact that the movie, of course, is not from the 70s. And then cross that with some like really cool, like uh, kind of California car culture from that era with the stripes and the lines and the shapes and the, the I, th- I think of big Kudas and like 914s and signal orange and re- really cool stuff like that. So I kind of get the vibe. It's uh, it's I could see that. I think I could see at least a version of that mood board. Yeah, it was a fun project. And then, you know, when you have an idea like that in this whole design territory like that, the other thing that ended up being really fun was all of the assets we created to launch the watch from the photography, which was shot by Zach Pena and and his uh, inspiration for the photo shoot. And people will hopefully see the photography for this watch was it's a road trip from L.A. to Palm Springs. So you see the watch, uh, you know, out in the desert, in desert light, the, the, the colors on this watch just not only is that the environment that inspires the watch, but the watch just looks great in that sort of environment. We also created a whole bunch of video assets that were uh, to both tease the watch and reveal the watch that were inspired by 1970s movie title sequences. Oh, yeah. You know, think like Saul Bass title sequences or think James Bond title sequences from that era, very colorful and graphical. So we ended up just having a lot of fun with not just making the watch itself, but making everything else that goes around the watch, um, including a project we did with our with our mutual friend, uh, Wesley Smith of, of Standard Age. So one of the things we, we just couldn't contain ourselves or keep ourselves from doing because the world of this watch and the visual language of this watch is so fun was uh, making a trucker hat. So we've made a standard H um, 75 trucker hat. So Love it's it. a, <laughs> it's a Brown trucker hat with a 75 uh, logo done in, in, um, in this color palette. And uh, that, that's something that's included for free with, with the first 150 watches or one of the first 150 people to pre-order that standard H trucker hat is, is included with, with purchase. <laughs> and it's just another thing we could not contain ourselves <laughs> from doing because that world is just a lot of fun. Okay. So, I mean, I, the hat sounds awesome as, as does the idea that you guys went back through some of the great title sequences and pulled kind of inspiration from that. Sometimes that's the, that's like arguably I, you can start a movie and be like, I'm not sure I'm going to watch this whole thing. And then, like, I don't, I don't know if I've ever made it to the end of the title credits for North by Northwest and wasn't so jacked to watch that whole very long movie. Uh, so I get it. I think that's also, like, kind of fun inspiration. You are mentioning the pre-order. So the watch is available on pre-order starting today when this episode drops, November 7th. Price is $41.50. And we've got a little bit of a, an extra bonus for uh, those on the TGN Slack. Do you want to walk people through some of that? Look, we're, we're TGN geeks. We've been listening since the earliest days. I've I think I've listened to every episode. Me too. Uh, oh, yeah. Funny how that works. <laughs> <laughs> and so we wanted to do something for the for the TGN community. So we have, in addition to the, the things we just mentioned, uh, we have a special offer for the TGN community. It's a special bundle for that community. And the details of that are all in the TGN Slack. So if you're a member of the TGN Slack, all the information on the TGN bundle is there. And if you're not yet a member of the TGN Slack, uh, this is a good time to join uh, because we have a, we have a couple of goodies that we're including for for TGN community members along with the watch itself. Yeah, one of them is especially special. But if we're keeping it a secret, we can keep it a secret. That's fine. If you're listening and you're part of the Slack, swing by either TGN-General-Chat to see the thing, or there'll also be a new channel called Special Presentations where we can talk about this episode and we'll also reiterate 
uh, this special package. I, I guess the most I can say, because I can't really contain all of my excitement about this little add-on, is uh, it glows in the dark and it's not what you're expecting. So <laughs> if you're in the Slack, swing by and take a peek at it. It's really cool. And if you've been on the fence for the Slack, it's five bucks a month. Uh, hop in there. And uh, actually, if you only did it to get this extra, you probably pocket like 35, 40 bucks. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what this product goes for, but I've never seen one in this spec before. <laughs> it, it pays for itself. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So a 40 millimeter Diver 65 in bicolor with a very special dial, uh, which we've explained. I highly recommend people either hit the show notes or collectiveferology.com or both to see more. Check out those images from Zach. Check out the uh, video elements. It's a 250 piece limited edition, right? Yeah, 250 pieces total. And anything else you'd want people to know or, or are you feeling inspired by the 70s enough to jump into a draft? Yeah, let, let's get into it. All right. So it's my job to explain the draft, but Gabe, it's going to be your job to pick the drafting order. So I'll give you a minute or so to think about who's going to go in what order. It's a serpentine draft. So if you pick last in the first round, you pick first in the second round and so on. We'll each have three picks. Nobody can double pick. So once it's picked, it's off the list. There's no price consideration here. We're talking about watches of the 70s with the goal being a watch that was made in the 70s, sold in the 70s, that sort of thing. Really make your case when you pick your watch that it's a 70s watch. If it came out in the 70s, that's easy. If it was still being sold in the 70s, but you think it was a 70s watch, you're going to have to convince us. Everyone's going to get three choices. And at the end, we'll even do a little bit of a chat of some of the watches that didn't make it. But we'll end up with nine, hopefully very 70s watches. Any questions? Or uh, Gabe, can you let us know the uh, the order for today's draft? Yeah, so I, I had the internet randomly assign an order. So Jason, you're going to go first. I'm second. Well, James, you are third. Hot corner. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. This is going to be super fun. Uh, so Jason, when you're ready, uh, kick it off with your first one. And I, I, I will be clear if you pick my first pick, our friendship is over. <laughs> there's no <laughs> chance. I just don't think there's a chance. Um, in fact, uh, I'm pretty excited because, uh, this watch, uh, that's my first choice is the watch that's actually on my wrist. It's a watch that I told a little story about last year when I happened upon it at an estate sale. Um, and it is a, an Omega Speedmaster Mark three. So for the benefit of you guys that are, you know, James and, and Gabe that can see it uh, on our little video call here. I'm wearing it right now. It's got the blue dial. These first came out in 1971, so it fits squarely in our requirements. Um, and what I particularly like about this is that this is a watch that really was representative of what Omega was doing at that time. You know, the, the early 70s were obviously a very tumultuous time for the Swiss brands in general. And Omega had kind of gone in this direction where rather than just iterate their existing families forward, they just went some really wild directions with huge cases and lots of angles and hooded lugs and color. Uh, specifically, they did a lot with blue. And so to me, it just, it's not only born in the 70s, this is a very 70s watch in, in terms of style. And also representative of all the not really aesthetic is the fact that this, this watch uses Omega's very first self-winding uh, chronograph movement. It was their uh, caliber 1040, which was a Lamania base. Um, but it was it's kind of representative of that time as well when automatic chronographs were, were new as well and, and quite thick in, in the case of this one. I mean, it is, it's a massive thing. It just looks like Darth Vader's helmet or something. So that's, that's my pick. It's the, I think it was the, the uh, I think it was the reference 176.002 for those keeping score, but it's the Omega Speedmaster Mark III. What do you guys think? 
That's fantastic. I think that's a solid pick and they are a very 70s uh, sort of thing. And I think it's kind of cool. I, I think it would be really difficult to do nine great watches from the 70s and not get into Omega's giant, chunky chronograph offerings. I won't say any others. Yeah. Uh, you know, it says I'm not stealing any picks or anything, but I, I think that's a solid one. What do you figure, Gabe? Yeah, I think it, it's interesting. It's it's a really good first pick because I think it's a harbinger. I'm guessing it's certainly a harbinger of a lot of things I have, which is, you know, the, these codes of the 70s, unusual case shapes, automatic chronographs, which, you know, were just before the 70s, but really carried through the 70s. Um, interesting use of of color. So those are some things, at least in a lot of the watches I researched and are certainly in some of my picks that, that stand out as kind of the codes of the 70s. So great first pick. Thank you. All right, Gabe, you want to follow it up with your first pick? I'm excited to hear uh, what, you, what you're thinking, where your headspace is. Yeah, so my, my first pick, it's a, it's a defensive pick. I'm picking it first because, <laughs> so, because it's um, such, a, such a quintessentially 70s watch from actually a brand that's not really kind of a 70s brand or didn't really have a ton of stuff that stands out as particularly 70s, which is uh, the Rolex Explorer 2. Oh. <sighs> Yeah, like I said, it's a defensive pick, man. Well played. Yeah, that was definitely my first pick. Yeah, so that's reference 1655, created in 1971. Great watch. So, you know, very, very much a a child of the 70s. In 39 millimeters, it's a it's a classic Rolex sport watch, except that it's not. So, you know, in in terms of its proportions, right, it's going to wear like a Submariner or a GMT Master of 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 that era, but. It's probably one of the most unusual Rolex watches ever, certainly one of the most unusual Rolex stainless steel sport watches um, ever. So you've got a dial that's very geometric. Um, you don't have the typical kind of um, indices and loom plots that you would on on other watches. They're very angular, you know, square, rectangular, triangular. Uh, you have uh, that use of uh, orange in the GMT hand, or like a, I guess it's not technically a GMT hand, but in the 24-hour hand, which they brought back and sort of endures um, to this day. So I, I could imagine like if I was alive in the 70s, and this is kind of the philosophy I applied a little bit to my picks here, which is like, I'm trying to close my eyes, imagine I'm alive in the 70s, and I'm trying to <laughs> pick a couple of watches for my personal collection. And I wanted them to feel not like, quote, 70s watches, but I wanted them to feel modern or contemporary, what would I be going for? And, and to me, the, uh, the Explorer 2 kind of stood out, uh, stood out from the, the beginning. It's just 70s enough, yet also very wearable and uh, something that endures, I think, as, as a, an oddball Rolex to this day. I can't, I'm not sure I could, you took the, the whole script, the whole thing that I had <laughs> planned. I, I think this is, this is such a special moment in Rolex's lineage and of, of my favorite kind of line from Rolex, the Explorer 2. But the Explorer 2 started out weird and became conventional, but it took them a long time. Uh, when it came out, it would arguably didn't even look like a pro model. Like you said, an entirely different dial design didn't look anything like a Submariner dial in a different case or a GMT dial in a different case. Uh, it took them a long time to figure out the functionality. Uh, for those who don't know, the original 1655 was essentially a linked 24-hour hand. So one show, the normal hour hand showed you 12-hour time and the 24-hour hand showed you 24-hour time. The conceit that's still shared today is that it was for spelunking and cave ex- exploration where you didn't know if it was night or day. 
I don't know if that's true, but the watch was, you know, later picked up by Reinhold Mesner, who, for what, for all reports, uh, liked to be on top of caves, not inside them, and uh, definitely in spaces where you can tell if it's day or night. Uh, it's just one of my all-time favorite watches. When you say a '70s watch, there's like six or seven watches that jump to my mind, and this is among maybe the most bland because it it, it how it has become an '80s watch, and then it became a '90s watch, and then it became a t- like they just kept going with the Explorer too, and it's now such a core piece of their like professional lineup, and and then like you said to see after the 50th anniversary to see the orange hand come back, I'm of course a huge fan of of kind of where they solidified the professional look of it with the um, 16570, but a 1655 errantly and possibly incorrectly often called the Steve McQueen Explorer. No real knowledge that he wore one, but a fascinating watch and just a fantastic first round pick. We've got a big Omega Chrono and we've got a Rolex sports watch. It's the 70s. (laughs) I love the Explorer too because it's a very 70s watch without being like a caricature of itself. I mean, I think a lot of the watches, at least that I picked and I looked at, are kind of like they're caricatures of, of 70s design, a little little cartoonish. And, you know, they're they're charming and endearing, but like how well did they really endure? Whereas th- this kind of uh, ticks both, both boxes and has some longevity, which I think is interesting. Yeah, every once in a while, uh, you know, Rolex comes up with these oddballs that that you they're so unusual. Uh, other than the case, you know, it's like these um, strange day dates mm-hmm. and things that the weird cartoon ones that they came out with uh, just this past year. And and I think for Rolex to enter the '70s with the Explorer Two, it, it's like it's kind of Rolex like really trying hard to like be hip, you know, and like be, do something funky and, and colorful um, at the beginning of that era. So. Uh, yeah, I like that call. Such such a great watch, and if you're if you were happen to be watching the video, but Gabe, you can see right over my shoulder is a print of said watch. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, <laughs> I I didn't I didn't even notice. <laughs> I'm glad I, I I'm glad I did my defensive pick. It, it worked out. Yeah, that was a good call. Yeah, that was a good a great good strategy. Really good yeah. strategy. You read me mm-hmm. like a book, um, and uh, well explained. Solid watch. Great first pick. Um, I get my first and my second pick back to back as I'm in the hot corner. Makes it a lot easier to pick between these two watches because I was really <laughs> struggling when I realized I wasn't going to get the 1655. But I'm going to go with a Benris Type One. I, I just think when when I think of 70s watches that I would I will forever want to own. That's among the coolest watches ever made. It has an incredible like CIA backstory. I love that it's a 12 hour bezel. I love that if you put that watch on today or if you put on a modern iteration of that watch. They wear perfectly. They're identical. The asymmetrical case is just enough, uh, just a little splash of the 70s and otherwise a very conventional, low profile, military adjacent and kind of a um, like an everything I would need from a watch scenario with the 12 hour bezel are, you know, even more, say, quote unquote, travel friendly than uh, the 1655 would have been is that you didn't have an independently adjustable hand on that. I love the way these look every time you see one in like a grainy photo from some possible op from the 70s you're like oh man that's just that's so cool they're amazing on a nato so i'm I'm gonna go with the benner's type one uh to kick it off that's a, that's a pretty sober choice i mean I, I'm, I'm surprised but but it is very 70s and and when i see those watches um as you said in grainy photos and things i just think i don't know i think vietnam era cold war kind of conspiracies and and paranoia and and just like deep undercover kind of stuff it's a uh, feels does feel very um indicative of the kind of the vibe of that of that uh that decade yeah it's it's a stoic watch for sure right like um it, it speaking of a watch that's really not a caricature of the 70s um 
this this one definitely is not. But one one of the things that has been int- I've spent way too much time over the last year thinking about seventies design, seventies <laughs> watches, and and things like that. And I think you know we often have a, you know a, a, a mental image of what seventies what the seventies are and seventies design is. And one of the things I, I uncovered in in spending so much time in this decade is there's a ton of range and there's all sorts of interesting stuff. Um, So this watch is a great example of it. And like another kind of example of like a very stoic take on, on, uh, but quintessentially seventies would be like brutalist architecture, right? So within the seventies, like we oftentimes think of it as a monolith, but it's, it's really not a monolith. Uh, And this watch is just a great example of that. Well, I also think like the, the 70s was a time that obviously this is a, a, a silly statement, but I think it it's, makes sense to say is like the 70s, especially the early 70s, the watches we've picked largely have come from the early 70s so far would reflect the end of the 60s, which was a time of great division in in the structure of the world. There was an active war and there was counterculture. There was uh, the freedom of the West Coast against the kind of continued... Uh, class rank, if you will, of the East Coast. And, and this is, we're speaking very specifically to America at this point. But I, I like that if you're drawing inspiration, yeah, at the same time, you could go with something that's a little bit more of its era of Vietnam, like the the Benrus Type 1, or you could go, and, and obviously this is a watch that came out later, um, or you could go with something that's of the era of big, but still pre-oil crisis muscle cars, right? It's <laughs> two different vibes that came out at the same time, right? And, and I think um, especially the early 70s, because cars really change in the middle there um, for, for a number of reasons that don't have any place in this draft. But I, I do think they're an interesting thing to kind of sit on where, yeah, the, this was a time of like a lot of complexity. And I think part of that was relayed in, in some of the product and in, in, in the way that fonts and I mean, there's no fonts on a Benner's type one, um, uh, but the, the way things like fonts and color and, and that sort of thing were used. So uh, I have I have a, a strategy, which is a little bit like a couple convention, more or less conventional watches and then something I hope that won't get also um, snapped up before me, but something a little bit wilder to make sure that we, we get both sides of the 70s. So yeah, Benner's type one is my first one. And you get the next one. What's your second pick? And the next one, I, I think people could probably guess this one, which is why I wanted to leave it for the second. But uh, we're going to go uh, one uh, same year that the Benner's Type 1 came out, 1972. A fellow named uh, F.A. Porsche left the company that bared his last name, started Porsche Design, and made the world's first all-black watch on a bracelet. It's the Porsche Design Chronograph 1. It is one of my all-time favorite watch designs. And if you told me it was from the 90s, I'd believe you. If you told me it was from the 2000s, I'd believe you. If you told me it was from like 1965, I'd probably still believe you. It's a watch that's just perfectly designed. It's, it has a great weight on your wrist. It has a lovely presence. Uh, you know, this is a watch designed by a guy who's made a few other things that lasted, like the 911. You know, they're celebrating the better part of more than seven decades of, of that car. And I think from a watch standpoint, I don't know that it's the equivalent of a 911. I would say that it isn't. But I love seeing these. They wear like almost nothing else. I feel like a lot of whole brands have been designed under the design language of this one watch, Porsche design and otherwise. And it's it was an easy short list for me as I, I would I hoped I could get either the Porsche design chronograph one or the sixteen fifty five. So it's going to be a Porsche design chronograph one for my round two pick. It's pretty wild. Every time I I see a Porsche design watch the first you know no matter what vintage it's from the first question i always ask is what year is this from because you can't you can't really tell 
not unless you get really deep into small stuff on the dial. Like if you get close enough and you like almost like with 1655s, there's several different dials over the run, but they're all like at a glance, very similar. And there's a, there's, yeah, there's something sweet about them for sure. So is this a a pick that, I mean, is this a watch you consider quintessentially seventies or or did you pick it because you think it's a significant watch from the seventies? I think it's probably more the latter than the former. I think a lot of people, like I said, might actually weigh this in as being a watch from the 80s when Top Gun came out, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or or maybe a watch from the 90s when IWC really aligned their aesthetic with the core of this watch's aesthetic. But weirdly, yeah, it's 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 from 1972. It basically the dial design is a, almost a direct lift, and uh, and if you ever get a chance to sit in uh, in in a similar era 911, you you can really go like, oh, this is the same dude did this. And I think it's crazy to think that one person, it's not crazy to think that one person, especially in the guise of 70s watches, we may even get to some of those watches, um, that one person made a big impact on something like watch design. But I would say this is more quintessentially a like very lasting, great design that happened to come from the 70s rather than a like incredible time capsule of 70s design, if that makes sense. Well, it was on my list, so I'll, I'll have to scratch that one. It was, it was going to be number three or four. I, f- I feel like this watch is bubbled up in people's consciousness obviously this recent uh, version that porsche design came out of the chronograph one the modern stuff is nice but like it, it these watches have been on my mind and I, when we were talking about 70s watches gabe to your point this doesn't feel quintessentially 70s but for some reason it's like it's perfect for this draft so good call and i think gabe it's your next pick so i've got something from the very uh late 70s i think it might be in a watch that came out in in 78 or, or 79 and um, that's the Seiko Golden Tuna. Oh. So this is a 600-meter quartz dive watch. What, what's interesting about it, this wasn't the first Seiko Tuna. So the first Seiko Tuna came out a few years earlier, I guess middle of, of the 70s, and it had um, an automatic movement in it. And the Golden Tuna, which came out a few years later, was uh, the first to use quartz. Thinking about the 70s, I mean... Uh, I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't end this draft or I couldn't, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't include a quartz watch. Quartz was a really important part of, of the 1970s. I also really wanted to include a Seiko watch. I mean, Seiko is a brand and maybe we'll have others in in the draft here, but Seiko is a brand that was absolutely on fire in the seventies are so many great Seiko watches uh, that feel quintessentially seventies and feel significant. I'm actually wearing a Seiko Turtle from 1977. So that was from the first year of production of, of the of the Turtle. I have a real soft spot for Seiko, and so I almost put the Turtle in, but then I realized I I could do something quartz, and I could do something really kind of interesting with the Golden Tuna because it's it's a really serious dive watch in its own right. It's uh, 600 meters water resistance, uh, built for saturation diving with no kind of helium escape valve or or anything like that. And um, I I just find it's like a very fascinating, unusual. And again, if I think back to if I was around in the 70s and I was looking for a really cool dive watch, this is one that would stand out as very different, very modern and extremely high tech and innovative. That's a that's an amazing pick, and I it reminds me there's a lesser known film from the '70s that uh, features this watch, um, and it's surprisingly it, it stars Roger Moore, and it's called North Sea Hijack. Have you seen that? 
He, I think he wears this watch in that movie. I, I haven't seen that movie, but he does wear it in one of the James Bond films yes. um, from that era as well, The Golden yeah. Tuna. So yes. maybe Roger was Roger more like a Seiko ambassador? Well, he wore Seikos in some of the earlier ones too, like mm-hmm. the, the LCD one and, and things like that. So yeah, he seemed to have a connection, a strong Seiko connection. If I'm being t- if I'm being totally honest, the thing that put me over the top with this watch was that it was that it was worn in a, in a James Bond movie. So that was just like the final box I needed ticked to get it to get it to the top of the list. Yeah, yeah, that's great. A solid pick, and I really love pulling on the quartz thread, which you know I, I very briefly referenced the oil crisis, which had a big effect on cars. But arguably, weirdly, within a few years, we had a very similar sort of crisis based on the backbone of, of the Swiss watch industry, which of course is mechanical movements. Uh, so I think that's a fantastic pick. And I'm so glad we got a Seiko in because so much of what we love, like you said, Gabe, about Seiko was kind of born in the 70s. And they, they do really carry that torch into current models, whether it be a brand new Turtle and SRP777 or, or otherwise, you know, the Willards and the, and the rest of it, a huge lineup that still is very much informed by that era of, of the company's success. Uh, and, and kind of the generalized expansion of hardcore diving, um, which was certainly uh, something we saw in the 70s. All right, Jason, you get uh, round two for you and round three. Man, it feels like I've been off uh, off for a while here now. <laughs> I don't think uh, this is one that I wouldn't call this a defensive pick. I, I think it's I've got this theme going and I'm going to continue on with it. And this is uh, of automatic chronographs. And this uh, my next pick is the Citizen bullhead chronograph it was the caliber 8110 i think it was nicknamed the challenge timer so people might be familiar with this watch due to its appearance on brad pitt's wrist in once upon a time in hollywood a uh, great film even though it was actually set before this watch was released which a number of people have pointed out but i think this is such an incredibly uh, great kind of 70s uh, example of a watch it, it was the it was the bullhead chronograph it came in a number of different forms there were two-tone ones with um, kind of a, a, a early sort of form of PVD uh, on part of the case. They did a, a gold one. They've done two-tone. Uh, it's a flyback movement, uh, which is really cool with the bullhead pusher uh, sort of scheme. Uh, I guess some people called it the Mickey Mouse uh, chronograph style. Um, and I just think like this watch uh, on, you know, came on a bracelet. It could be seen on a bund strap, which I think would be the way, the way I would wear it. I mean, anything on a bund strap uh, is, is just pure 70s to me. Yeah, this is it's just such a great watch and I think it's it's enjoyed a bit of a comeback uh, on the vintage market and things because of because of that film. If I'm not mistaken, Citizen just released kind of a more modern iteration of this uh, within the past couple of years. I like how your 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 choices are veering absolutely gonzo, <laughs> whereas J- James has a much a more sober <laughs> uh, a taste in yeah. 70s watches, but uh, uh yeah, the, these are just so neat. I, I like these. It was fun to fun to see it, uh, quote unquote, incorrectly. Yeah, like you said, in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Not not as bad as the uh, was it a Submariner or a Sea Dweller in Argo, a modern ceramic. Oh <laughs> Rolex yeah, that, yeah. That ben yeah, Affleck right, worth right. there, but that that happens occasionally. That's a, a great pick, Jason, and and I think definitely deep into the seventies in terms of design and and something that even when they make it today, you can't really make a bullhead chrono and not talk about mm-hmm. why. And why is the 70s? Yeah, yeah. Um, so a, a good pick for sure. And and hey, it's you for uh, round three. You get to kick it off. Oh, here we go. Okay, well, all right. I'm going to keep on with this theme. Uh, and, and this is probably one that I'm guessing you guys had on your short list, at least. Uh, staying with automatic chronographs, uh, headed uh, staying in Japan, uh, the Seiko 6139, so-called Pogue. 
uh, chronograph. So, you know, this was arguably the, the first automatic chronograph movement in the world, which I feel like, you know, yes, 1969, but it really was a harbinger of the next generation and, and where watchmaking was headed. And I think, as I've shown with my two earlier picks, automatic chronographs, I just feel are so early 70s. There were such great ones back then. Uh, and this one, of course, is, is one of the most famous. Uh, the Pogue configuration specifically had this shimmering sort of sunburst yellow, sort of orangey yellow dial uh, with a Pepsi bezel, which should not work together, I think, but it does. Really wide, almost kind of square, very angular case. Uh, you know, these these watches are just, I owned one for a while and, and I, I do kind of regret getting rid of it, but these are these are just quintessential 70s. I mean, I just went full on with, you know, Seiko, such a powerhouse as Gabe, you mentioned in the 70s and then just pure funky 70s style with this one. Yeah, I love how they come into the 70s with a watch like this and then they leave the 70s with something like the Golden Tuna. I mean, it just sort yeah. of, yeah. they're the perfect kind of bookends um, to the to the decade. And what's also interesting, like you mentioned with the, with the Pogue here in 1969, it almost feels like from doing research on this, there are a few watches I came across that were just eye-popping that I always thought were 1970s mm-hmm. watches that were made in 1969 yeah. or started production in 1969, which was, yeah. which is interesting. I, yeah. I, I still get, you know, intellectually give them credit or whatever as seventies watches, but there was, it, it's true. I mean, obviously there were technological breakthroughs that happened in 1969, automatic chronographs being one of them, but there was something in the water in 1969. It's almost <laughs> like when the calendar turned to six from 68 to 69, it, the seventies kind of really began, which is, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I've I've read in some media theory about the the way that some decades hang on to being that decade, like how the '70s goes into early '80s in many ways. Mm. And yeah, that's a that's a solid pick, you know, and and a solid trio uh, that you put together there. I like that you had kind of a theme. Uh, we hit different sides of the of the watch world with uh, mm-hmm. with Omega and Citizen, and then Seiko and. Uh, yeah, not. Uh, I'm going to be honest, I and mean, we can get into it more once Gabe and I get our, our last picks in. But not what I was expecting um, for you for your second or third pick. So <laughs> I actually have some freedom here on my list. I wasn't quite expecting. Yeah, yeah. So do I. I hadn't set out with this intention of, of just doing automatic chronographs, but as soon as I did my first one, and then I looked down, and you guys didn't take them, I thought, all right, well, let's just run with it. So yeah, it worked out. All right. Well, let's see if uh, let's see if Gabe can follow suit with a with a trio that that has the uh, kind of as, as much luck and four chance in, in kind of aligning nicely there. But Gabe, what are you going to follow uh, the Explorer two and the Seiko Golden Tuna with? Yeah, so I'm in, I'm calling an audible here. My my third watch was actually going to be a um, Aquastar Regat, which is a wild tonneau shaped um, regatta timer from from the 70s. But I think you've so well covered the world of 70s um, automatic chronographs, which which at its uh, heart, the, the regatta is a is a chronograph um, that I'm actually going to switch it up. So I'm going to I'm going to move into a, a totally different territory and one that's kind of a harbinger of, of something we haven't really discussed. So my, my next pick, my final pick is going to be the Zenith Defy A3648, also known as the plunger or the plongeur. It's a really wild dive watch um, that Zenith created in the 19, 1970s. So if you guys are familiar with the Zenith Defy, it's not an octagonal shaped stainless steel sports watch that Zenith actually launched in 1969. So this was a watch that I thought the, the Defy was a, a 70s watch. It's actually 
a watch from 1969. But this particular version of the Defy was made in the 70s, a couple of years later, I think in 1971, this watch was uh, created. And I actually discovered it through an article that Cole Pennington did in Hodinkee on Zenith watches from the 70s. So it's a Defy, hmm. but it's a dive watch, which is crazy. So it's got a rotating bezel on it, which is unusual for a, a Defy. And it has um, a dial design that almost reminds me a lot of, and this is another great brand from the 70s, reminds me of uh, Zodiac Seawolves. Oh, yeah. So it's got this orange and and black kind of very graphical dial. And I'm, I'm picking this one. It's a 39 millimeter watch, very, very wearable, stainless steel. It comes on a, on a beautiful Gay Frere bracelet. But I'm picking this one because it, it, it pulls a, bu- a bunch together um, for, for me. One is it's um, a Zenith Defy. And I think... The idea of these these octagonal and geometric stainless steel sports watches is something that's obviously very important to the 70s. A lot of times we think about the Royal Oak as kind of the 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 first watch that kind of started it. And I think in the popular imagination, the Royal Oak was obviously a very significant watch. But the Zenith Defy came out years earlier and was was a, a watch that I view, and I still view a lot of Zenith's designs as ahead of the curve. So I, I view this watch as something that's very important in terms of setting a template for a style of watch, these stainless steel sports watches that came to define the 70s. And then I think it's also interesting because it's just a very quirky, unusually shaped, very colorful dive watch, which is something I also associate with the 70s, whether it's this watch or a zodiac or something from doxa so to me it brings these two elements together um it's a very deep cut but it brings these two elements um together in a really interesting way that is a really deep cut i had to like google it while you were talking and that's that's a wild piece and you know what i noticed too it has the the now controversial 430 date position which uh i I just don't see much on on older watches that is a wild thing yeah, and that that's something that Zenith, I mean, to this day remains really dedicated to the 430. Yeah. It's a very deep cut. Like it's not an iconic or a or a significant 70s watch, but I think it's one that pulls in a lot of different pieces uh, of what for me defines what a what a 70s watch is. Good pick. Uh and I there's something about because uh, Jim from Giant Mouse, he has a very similar old Zenith diver that has the smoother case but has the crazy orange. I believe it's in the photo report from wind up Chicago, but it has that in that orange, like you'd almost swear it was backlit. It's so bright, whatever material or execution. And it, it throws out so much light. It's a, it's a, yeah, they're fabulous things. Hard, hard to ignore on a wrist in the same room. And there, there are a couple of brands. I I think you just cannot, we, we could not finish this draft without mentioning. And for me, Zenith is one of them. We talked about the importance of having like Seiko um, mm-hmm. in, in here. And I think for me, I, I felt really, really guilty <laughs> about leaving Zenith out because whether it's it's the Defy or certainly the El Primero Chronomaster stuff, it's a it's a very interesting and significant 70s brand. So I'm 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 glad I, I called the Audible and thank you, Jason, for for all of your unusual chronographs. It it opened up some space for this one. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. A, a solid pick. And I agree. They're a brand with like a quintessential 70s vibe, even today. So a, a solid pick for sure. And that brings us to my pick, the final of the draft. I'm having a really tough time here because there's some crazy obvious stuff that we're, we haven't spoken about. And there's one that I didn't even... I had it on like my like sub list, but I didn't have it on my actual list because I thought there was no chance it wasn't Jason's first or second. 
And I think that's the one I need to go with. I think it'd be really strange if we did a whole episode about 70s watches and neither Jason nor I picked a Ploprof. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? So uh, I, this, to be fair, and if you guys want to vote on this, we can vote on it. Um, technically, very deeply technically, a watch of the 60s, but was originally announced and began retail in 71. Its development was definitely into the late 60s, but from the research that I did to confirm... Uh, February 1971 is when you could have actually gone out and gotten a, uh, a Ploprof, as, which would at the time was called a Seamaster 600 Ploprof. Uh, there were like six or seven other watches that were deeply more, uh, somehow more 70s, but in some ways less. Hard to describe. Wilder watches in terms of dial and function, that kind of thing that I have on my list. But I just, how do you not have the Ploprof? This Because I, I, I think it, it marks kind of the start of something for Omega, these kind of big hyper overproduced engineered watches that still really deeply were tools these were watches worn by actual divers you know Cousteau and and they had all that connection to that that element of the world but at the same time this also marks the end of the 300 right which around 1970 basically wrapped up I you know that's one of my all-time favorite sport watches period from any decade but I think it'd be difficult to call, even though it was still being sold, say, to the tail end of the seven, of 1970, I, that's not a 1970s watch. It's like deeply a mid-century watch. And I feel like the next phase of Omega is kind of represented in either watches like uh, Jason's uh, Speedmaster Mark III, which is a first-round pick, a uh, watch that wasn't picked, but maybe we'll talk about in a minute, like a Flightmaster and stuff like the ProProf. Suddenly, Omega went, oh, we can just do anything we want. <laughs> And they did whatever they wanted. They and they made some really cool stuff. And an early Ploprof, a modern one, is a treat to see, but an early one is like seeing a a, a Lamborghini Miura. It's just something like deeply special and cool, and felt five ten years ahead of its time. Well, and and it's a fantastic pick. It was on my list until I got on this weird chronograph jag. But <laughs> to kind of close a circle here, you know, Gabe, you mentioned uh, the Aquastar, and and then with my pick, and then the Ploprof. There is a connection here because the the guy who was overseeing Aquastar throughout the 60s left Aquastar. He was wooed away by Omega and went to work for Omega. And he was the guy behind the Flightmaster, this case on the Speedmaster Mark III, uh, and the Ploprof development. He was, he, he was his name was Frederic Robert, and he was this uh, really interesting guy who obviously knew what he was doing. Largely unsung, but uh, definitely connects these... Uh, these brands we've talked about it's a it's a great one because it's such a wild and outlandish and creative design really you, you show anyone a ploprof today they're fascinated by it no matter who they are no matter what they care about watches or or don't at all it's such an outlandish design but it, it's one that really captures people's imagination and it doesn't quite i mean in some ways yes but in, in many ways it doesn't quite feel like a lot of the other outrageous um, 70s watches we discuss. I mean, its case and construction is so distinct. It doesn't feel from, you know, like it's from central casting in a way that maybe some of these other ones kind of do. Its appearance or its form truly followed function, whereas a lot of these other elements like the, the Zenith Defy, I mean, that, that clearly was an architectural, that was an aesthetic choice to make a case that shape. It had nothing to do with the function, whereas the Ploprof ends up looking very 70s, but I'm sure that wasn't even on the designer's mind when he put all this together. 
I mean, look, we, we kind of started this off by chatting about mood boards. If I were to make a mood board about the 1970s, how many pages of that mood board am I going to get through on Keynote or whatever before I include that picture of Gianni Agnelli in the, <laughs> yeah. uh, in the wraparound sunglasses and wearing his Ploprof 600 on the sleeve, you know, with a Western belt? Like, yeah. maybe this thing didn't represent the, the wildest edge of the 70s, but it was like a piece of the miasma that made up that wildness. Mm-hmm. I mean, like there's so many watches that I that any of us could call iconic that I think are significantly less iconic than this watch. And part of that is that they still make it. Yeah, I think it's a, a way crazier thing to have as part of today's lineup than it did in, in you know, 1971. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, quickly go over our picks in round one. My first choice was the Omega Speedmaster Mark three. Gabe had the Rolex Explorer two reference 1655. And James went with the Benrus type one. Then round two, I picked the Citizen Bullhead Chronograph. Gabe had the Seiko Golden Tuna. And James, you had the Porsche Design Chronograph 1. And finally, in round three, I kicked it off with the Seiko Pogue Chronograph, reference 6139. Gabe went with a very funky Zenith Defy A3648 Plongeur. And James also had a Plongeur for his final choice, the Omega Seamaster 600 Ploprof. There we go. What amazing nine watches, right? This is super fun. And and look, we're we're a few minutes over uh, schedule here. But Gabe, if you're good, I think we should chat about some of the ones that like were on the list but didn't make the cut because we only had nine. Do you have a few more minutes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I can I can set it off. So one, you know, I talked about some of these brands as being quintessentially seventies: Omega, Zenith, Seiko. Mm-hmm. One brand that's not on here that I really think of as a seventies brand is. Um, tag or Hoyer at that time, I guess it was. And we had, we had nothing from Hoyer. I mean, this is a a brand that was obviously instrumental to automatic chronographs as well, and embraced a lot of the design codes of, of the seventies and, and had even really before the seventies primary color and and things like that. So there's one watch that was really kind of calling my name as like that seventies watch, which is the uh, Hoyer Octavia GMT. And, um, if you think of like, you guys remember the Moser watch that they called like the Swiss icons watch a few years ago, it was like this parody watch that had, you know, all of the the features of every popular watch kind of put into one thing for me in, in a much more cohesive and, and, and authentic way, the Hoyer Octavia GMT does that. It's got a, a, a 10 case. It's an automatic chronograph. It has a really vivid use of color. It combines a lot of different uh, complications, which were kind of around in the 70s, whether it's the GMT or chronographs. And for me, it's almost like, um, you know, if if I if you look up 70s watch in the dictionary, you you might see you might see this one there. So that was a really hard one for for me not to include. But I think we did a good job of representing a lot of what makes that Hoyer special and in the other picks we we had. Yeah, I came really close. I mean, an eleven fifty eight, the CH eleven fifty eight, the solid gold uh, Carrera uh, was on my list. Turns out it came out in sixty nine, <laughs> uh, so that one got trimmed. But I think that an Octavia GMT is a fantastic pull. I had the Monza on my list, which is one that is like seventy six or thereabouts. Also, a really cool watch, but with the Benris and the Porsche design, it just it all felt so kind of demure and like too quiet. And then let's be clear. Let's look before we miss the chance. Uh, everybody uh, at some point was screaming through it that we didn't pick the Nautilus or the Royal Oak, which are probably the two 70s watches that have created the craziness around 70s watches today or in the last call it five years. 
Yeah, it felt I, it felt wrong for some reason for this one. I don't know. We 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 kind of did uh, when we had our uh, special presentation with Asher. We did a draft and we chose sort of high end luxury sports watches, and it seemed more fitting to have a, uh, those watches fit in there. But this one kind of felt maybe because we're following up our discussion of the the collective uh, horology Oris special edition. It just felt like yeah, I wanted stuff that was kind of more sporty, accessible. Uh, you know, I'm surprised that nobody picked uh, James, particularly you, and maybe I got the year wrong. Uh, the like the Tudor Monte Carlo chronograph or the home plate they called it oh yeah that would have been a good one yeah because I almost feel like it has some some visual similarity if you squint kind of with with this uh, diver 75 that you guys have put together Gabe sort of that a lot of geometric interesting shapes on the dial and, and some use of warm colors but yeah that was on my list uh second series of that watch was 1971 okay Right. So could could have been there, and that would yeah. have been a great pick. That yeah. one, I slept on that one. Yeah. I'll, I'll admit to that. Uh, let's see what else I had on my list that was kind of fun. Rolex Oyster Quartz. Oyster Quartz, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That would take a lot of boxes, including the Reinhold Messner box, yeah. I had an Omega uh, Albatross, if you know what that mm, is, the uh, the Annie Digi 1976 released for the Montreal Olympics. Oh. <laughs> it, was, it was a sideways, sort of like that Angelus they did. Yeah, 10 years ago right, right so it's like a, a rectangle that sat sideways on your wrist and one side had a you know a conventional analog time display and then the <laughs> chronograph was in two separate lcds on the left crazy i was surprised we didn't have anything from doxa yep i like i i intentionally didn't include doxa in anything i was doing because i thought it would be lazy and, co- <laughs> and covered by you guys <laughs> for me they're a brand that's distinctly 60s in their vibe because because yeah. everything is yeah. based on the 300 and the 300 came out in 67 um, but it was tempting to to pick something from the later generations or, or, or and that sort of thing because there's still some really good stuff and some funky stuff in their in their back catalog. And one that I just couldn't get myself to pick, but was on my list, my long list, uh, was the Hoyer Chrono Split. It had two digital displays, one over the other, and um, had they had a couple different case shapes. They made one called the Kentucky, oh. one called the Manhattan. Um, I mean. Really, this kind is of horribly, kind of ugly watches. I mean, like really <laughs> ugly watches. I, I couldn't get myself to include this one. But yeah, uh, yeah very well, The other one that I actually found on a list of ugly watches from the 70s, and I, I disagree <laughs> with this, yeah. um, is one, did you guys come across the Wittenauer Futurama 1000? I almost picked it just for the name. <laughs> a great name. It's a double <laughs> retrograde. So it's a asymmetric rectangular, but north-south. Oh, yeah. A watch with two retrograde hands. Wow. One indicating hour, one indicating, and then they would both snap. I guess at yeah. noon they would both snap wow. to the top. They came in steel and kind of like a plate. It was on. It was on my short list because I thought if I got an Explorer two and a Chronograph one and then something just like wild that would have never survived the seventies. Yeah. This probably didn't even survive the mid seventies. It was too. It was probably too much. But Whitnauer is another one of those brands, and and you know elements of Bulova and, and there's a lot of brands that like do connect really well with this. A decade, and then I think some of them didn't. Not Whitnauer and Bulova, but some brands that you could name wouldn't didn't make it through the quartz crisis, right? So, yeah, makes them a quint- quintessential uh, '70s brand. Anything else on on your guys' list that you feel like people are just going to shout at us if we don't uh, at least call out? I think the Nautilus and, and the Royal Oak are um, conspicuous in their absence, but um, you know, again, like I, two things come to mind for for me. Like those aren't really watches in my wheelhouse or in yeah, the TGN wheelhouse and i really approached it as like again if i were alive in the 70s and i was looking for a watch for myself and i wanted something that felt contemporary which direction would i go in and um 
and th- those just weren't weren't watches that that came up and and maybe it's in in part because at the time you know the history around it isn't really clear but oftentimes it's it's said that it took a while for the the royal oak to be understood i think oh, we yeah. you know you think about a lot of the other watches we picked they they fit right in with the gestalt of the 70s Whereas, you know, you can imagine something like the Royal Oak is just so arresting and different for so many reasons. It's it it, it may have taken a while to sort of click um, where we think about it now as a quintessentially 70s watch. But I wonder if anyone at the time really and I don't know, thought about it as like, a oh, that's a really modern contemporary watch that that, you know, that feels like something yeah. I'd wear. I don't know. Yeah, I think with the Royal Oak, it was like largely seen as a dud for a couple of years. But the other thing that I think outside of the specific deep watch nerds that existed before the internet, the, the what we know of the Royal Oak and the and the um, the Nautilus today, that didn't exist 10 years ago, let alone in 1972 and 1976. Like these are watches that have like may have been popular in past decades in various versions and the rest of it. Of course, they're still around. So they were popular enough to continue to be made. But really, the Zenith like is probably two years ago. For both of these watches, uh, to, to to like paint a picture where they were suddenly like crazy hyped among people who maybe didn't know one watch for another, they knew a Nautilus or you knew a Royal Oak, like some people would know a Submariner, but maybe not a sixteen fifty five, right? Like I think if you did this draft three times, you would have they would be in it would be in there even among us. But I'm pretty comfortable with the nine we came up with uh, as kind of representing the taste and vibe of uh, of the show and of collective and and yeah, like Jason said, kind of aligning more directly with with the sort of um, kind of value statement and aesthetic and everyday sort of wearability of something like that, the Aura seventy five uh, limited edition. So that was really fun. I, I enjoyed every minute of that. Yeah, it's it, it's always a blast to do these drafts, and uh, you know, Gabe, you were a, you were a great uh, participant. You and you and Asher have done collective proud when it comes to to these watch drafts. Yeah, we're we're good at oddball watches, so <laughs> it's it's fun. And and I think you know we said before we we recorded like, gosh, the research for this this podcast was just so much fun. Um, that Zenith, for instance, I had no idea even existed. So um, I, my not my watch nerdery is is the better for it. So thank you guys for the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, no, this was an absolute treat. Thank you so much for supporting the show with another special presentation. Obviously, all of this is in honor of the new Oris Divers 75 caliber 400 CO4 for Collective. You can find every detail that you need at collectiveferology.com or in the show notes. Please leave a comment. Let us know what you think of the episode. And uh, Gabe, any other way that you'd love people to connect with uh, with Collective or the new Oris? I think that covers it. And then the, the only other thing I'd mention is for Folks who are listening and are in the TGN Slack, there's uh, there's a couple extra goodies for you there if you want to uh, check out the, the watch through the Slack. And then for folks who haven't joined um, the TGN Slack, this is a good opportunity to to join it and uh, to, to get access to the watch that way. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's always a treat to have uh, either you or Asher on the show and to cross paths wherever we are in the wider world of watches. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for this and congratulations on a new collaboration with Oris. Looks great. Thanks, guys.